Prepare thine ears, prepare thine bum. For the things we think about podcast has come. Now for your hosts, Kenny and Aaron. Hello, 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 internet world. This is Things We Think About Podcast, and I'm your host, Aaron. How's it going? How are you doing out there in the world? Currently in Orlando, we're all hunkering down because Dorian is making its way very slowly up the state of Florida or near the state of Florida. It kind of changes each hour. It's very slow moving. So honestly, for me, the hurricane experience has kind of been the boy who cried wolf because the most we've ever gotten is uh, some limbs in the yard. I don't say that with anything other than gratitude because I know based on stories I've heard, it could be a lot worse. I just recently watched the footage from the Bahamas and how devastated that is, how flat everything is now. Really sad stuff. I'd say the Red Cross is probably the place to go if you're looking to to donate to make any kind of impact. I think I heard a report where they're going to be giving out sandwiches soon there and, and food and things like that. I did volunteer for their mental health first aid. That part of our curriculum through counseling is trauma counseling, and all my whole class was certified in that. A few of us had the opportunity to go and help out with that, but right now they don't need anybody. So, so yeah, got some pretty important housekeeping today. It's with a heavy heart I'd like to announce that Kenny will no longer be joining us here in the co-host capacity. As you may have noticed, he's been fairly absent in a little under half the episodes. This is largely due to the fact that he's a full-time father of two. He has all sorts of irons in the fire. He recently moved to a new place, and they're building a new place, him and his family. Now, Kenny's a great friend of mine, you know. Hopefully that's been pretty obvious, especially in the first couple episodes when it was just me and him. And honestly, without him, I couldn't have caught the podcasting bug, as corny as that sounds. You know, but from the onset, I I think our ideas for the show and the direction we want to go have always been kind of different. His focus is pretty diverse. He's wanted to create videos more so than the podcast side of things, videos that are kind of related to the, quote, brand of the show, and really making things we think about more of a media forum than a singular show pony. And I'm definitely more of the show pony type. Creating a media forum is... Of course, not something I'm necessarily against. I just want to make sure I can keep up with all the work that the extra farming requires. You know, I've already found that the editing and the social media aspects of the show can be very cumbersome. I'm not complaining, of course. They're they're necessary evils for both reach and quality. But I think about how that scales up. And it's just not something I want to bother with until I can make the best possible show here first. And I feel like this show over time will kind of guide me and my personality naturally into where it wants to go. I realize it's kind of a woo-woo explanation, but it's kind of where I am right now too. So again, Kenny, he's got a lot of stuff going on. The last episode is not going to be the last you hear from him. Like all the guests you've already heard on the show, uh, if there's a crossing of subjects covered, I'm going to do my best to let them know about those possible subjects and add their voice to the subject, whether that's on the show or pre-recorded thing or however that looks. So the other part of the podcast is the podcast itself, the future of the show. And recently I've begun the internship portion of my counseling degree. So it's going to be tough to contemplate and strategize how the show is going to be with just me behind the wheel. Not only is this true for the episodes going out, but any kind of structural changes, things like that I'd I'd like to make. Like, for example, one thing I've been mulling over since me and Kenny talked about his departure is a new title for the show. It's not that I even dislike things we think about at all, despite being an obvious anagram for a pretty gross slang for a female reproductive organ, but something that is more indicative of the direction of the show and where it's headed. I've always been notoriously bad at names, even for this show. Me and Kenny had to spitball something that felt just good enough to meet a descriptor of the show, at the least. 
The other half of this is the title debate as well. It really doesn't matter, right? Like as long as it's something that sounds nice and is somewhat meaningful to the show. And that's true of the podcast world in general, not so much of the music world where a band name could really be anything and it's not indicative of their music or style at all. But yeah, I may just keep things we think about because for now it's the closest to what the show is, just a hodgepodge of things we think about. And of course the we will then translate not to me and Kenny, but you as the audience, as a collective, myself, the people on the show, etc. So, but outside of that, I may try some different segments, much like the unofficial sponsor bits, but largely I think the show will still be led by what is interesting to me and hopefully you, the audience. I'd be lying to say that having a large audience wouldn't be a huge boon to the ego, to whatever inner narcissist that every person who does public-facing things has, but mostly I really just hope the audience can provide more of a community function than anything. Those things, of course, aren't mutually exclusive, but I'm, I've always been trusting of the masses more so than my own brain on a lot of things, for better or for worse. Not to mention, if someone cares enough to make a comment or reply or anything like that, it means by default they care. They have to put some effort into doing that. And I want to honor that as best as I can and kind of make the best place for all those things to happen and inter- intermingle. So speaking of which, we received a voice message from Jonathan. I'll play now, but for whatever reason, it got a little garbled. I'll try to fix the audio at the best I can, but uh, here it is. Hey, I'd like to listen to your podcast, but I can't seem to find it on Podcast Addict. So thanks, Jonathan, for that message. In case you couldn't make that out, it's, uh, he's talking about Podcast Addict, which I guess is a supplier of podcasts. I've never heard of it until this message, and I checked it out. It seems pretty cool. So Jonathan, I've went ahead and submitted that RSS feed to them. So please let me know if you see it in the future. And thanks for listening to the show. And I'll just add too that I'd like to get this out to as many platforms as possible. Anchor has a bevy of them that are compatible with their RSS feed that I have not yet pounced on. Of course, the major ones are hit, I think right now, Google Play, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. But there could be more down every little corner of the internet. All right, so... Today's guest I'm really grateful for because our conversation really grounded me after all the more cerebral philosophical chats we've been having about transhumanism. I love those types of conversations, don't get me wrong, but there's really something for me that is equally magical and awe-inspiring about the details of what we know and what we're doing about certain tech that will kind of be a precursor to anything resembling what a transhuman looks like. So Ben has a really interesting background. He studied neuromechanics of locomotion and how that impacted exoskeleton assistance. That work won the 2016 Journal of Biomechanics Award that was featured on Ray Kurzweil's blog. He went on to do his postdoc at Temple University, where he worked on a project for the Army Research Office to understand how animals outperform the best robots that have been built to date. So any of those MIT Boston Dynamics videos you've seen where they're getting hit with a hockey stick. Some of his expertise in neuroscience comes as part of the project that he started where he developed viral tools to express optogenetic and chemogenetic receptors, things we'll be learning about in the show, to selectively manipulate parts of the nervous system. Pretty cool stuff. When he left his postdoc, he started a pharmaceutical company in Boulder where he's been the last two years where they're working on treating neuromuscular skeletal disorders. That's all he can say about it at the moment. He's pretty hush-hush for now, which is honestly kind of cool because, you know, Makes me think he's doing some cool-ass spy shit or something cool like that. But uh, anyway, great guest. Please enjoy my conversation with Ben. Awesome. Well, how are you doing?
you doing, man? Oh, I'm doing well. It's kind of hectic for me right now because I'm gearing up to move back to Philadelphia, but otherwise good. Nice. Where are you at right now, like geographically? I'm in Boulder, Colorado. Oh, that's right. Yep. So Ben, tell me about yourself. Who are you? What do you do? What got you interested in uh, transhumanism? And I guess really more what we're talking about today is kind of the nuts and bolts of it, right? So the where the rubber hits the road a little bit. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So my undergrad degree was in applied physics. And when I was coming out of school, didn't really know what to do with that. It seemed like there were a lot of options, none of which were particularly well-defined. But I ended up getting a job with the military studying traumatic brain injury, which was totally outside my wheelhouse at the time. I had done a fair amount of robotics up to that point, but had no real experience in biology whatsoever. And so they hired me to take recordings from implanted electrodes in the brain of rats, basically. And these were animals that had received a a model of what it's like to get a really bad concussion. And they wanted me to identify seizure-like activity. And if you don't want me to mention animal research or anything on the podcast, that's fine. I mean, it's kind of a big part of what I do, but I, I realize some folks are fairly sensitive to that sort of thing. No, no, please do. I mean, and I'll just throw up a trigger or spoiler alert right now and just say, like, we're going to be talking about that. No big deal. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's where so. a lot of this basic science happens. So... So they basically wanted me to automatically detect seizures using some precursors to what would be sort of modern day machine learning and deep neural networks. Turns out they didn't need anything nearly that complicated. Just some really basic signal processing that any electrical engineer would know how to do was more than sufficient. So here I am with a two-year contract a couple months in, and I've already kind of finished my project. So they said, okay, well... You're going to learn animal handling, you're going to learn neurosurgery, you're going to learn how to implant electrodes inside of a living animal's brain. It was really unexpected, but I really, really enjoyed it. Animal research isn't fun necessarily, but just the process of surgery and the precision of it and everything I really liked. But I really really got into was taking these neural signals and interpreting them. And so when I went to go do a PhD, I wanted to work in a group that worked on sort of integrating conscious thought into control of a device. And I ended up doing my PhD in a lab that does a lot of work with thought-controlled wearable robotic exoskeletons. So that's that was kind of my first exposure to what I would consider sort of a transhumanist field, this idea that you can record someone's thoughts and translate them into action through an external device like an exoskeleton. And while I was doing that, I got I started looking into like direct brain computer interfacing, not just listening, but also controlling the nervous system. And there were some neat emergent technologies at the time that allowed you to interface with the brain in ways that just simply aren't possible with electricity, uh, which is kind of still the gold standard these days. So I ended up moving to a, a lab at Temple University, actually, that They do a lot of work with optogenetics and chemogenetics, and I'm happy to talk more about what those are, but they're basically ways of using novel methods of interacting with the nervous system that allow you to be very, very selective in terms of what types of neurons you're hitting and how you're hitting them and the ways that they're modulated. Doing a project with the military, trying to build better legged robots, basically. If you've seen like... Boston Dynamics, they have Spot and Big Dog, MIT's got the Cheetah Robot, UPenn has Rex, 
And a lot of these things, they're, they're really good at certain types of movements or performance, but they're not nearly as adept as animals are at navigating difficult or complicated terrain. So a lot of that project was finding ways to mathematically describe how animals respond to that sort of thing and then implement that on a robot, but also finding ways of selectively activating or deactivating parts of their nervous system to kind of start figuring out what exactly they're doing and how they're doing it and what their control architecture looks like. And yeah, now I work for a pharmaceutical startup that I'm not going to talk about on here, unfortunately, because we're still in very early stages of discovery and haven't patented a lot. So talking about that is yeah, a pretty- Yeah, absolutely. Best kept secrets, right? Yeah. Yeah. And the, the people I work for have a pretty stellar legal team, so I don't want them beating down my door. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> wow. So that sounds like a pretty amazing path to where you are now. It sounds like you more or less fell in love at first surgery. But would that be fair? And, and I'll say too, that it seems interesting to me that you don't have to be a brain surgeon to do this type of work. It seems like, I guess in my layman mind, like that would just be pretty obvious, but apparently there's no ethical ramifications or anything that's preventing just typical engineers from doing that. Well, you know, it's not like you just get to walk into a lab one day and, and start slicing up animals. Um, there's yeah. a lot of training that goes into it. There's a lot of actual ethical education that goes into it, mm. which is something people typically don't realize when it comes to animal research is that, you know, within every institution that does this kind of work, there's what's called an Institutional Animal Care and Use Committee, also known as IACUC. Basically, what they are is a team of vets and medical professionals who make sure that whatever you're doing is really necessary for your research goals, that your research goals are justified, that you're not just doing things for the hell of it, and that you're minimizing any pain or distress that the animal might experience. And one thing that they really drive home to you when you first get started in animal research is if you ever get to the point where you legitimately enjoy the act of doing surgery and things like that, it's maybe time to think about hanging it up. And so when I say wow. I enjoy it, I enjoy the precision of it. I enjoy, it's working with your hands. It's a real craft. But at the end of the day, I really don't like the idea and the concept that I'm doing something that might potentially cause harm to a living thing. So you have to really make sure you have that reverence and that respect for the thing that you're doing, because it's not just a piece of wood, a piece of metal. You're, it's a, like you said, a living creature and a living creature too, that has contributed so immensely to science and every conceivable way. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, when I was first doing this with the military, we saw guys coming back from Iraq who had severe traumatic brain injuries. You, you really got to see kind of the, the justification for a lot of what you were doing, the, the real human costs there. And I'll say also, I have a, a younger sister who had a traumatic brain injury. And when this job with the military kind of fell into my lap. I knew how that had affected my life personally and, and kind of knew what, what I wanted for her, you know, in terms of medical treatments and things like that, and knew I wanted to help advance it. And, you know, unfortunately, working with animals is how you try radically new things. Uh, working with humans is where you try very boring, incremental, iterative things that are likely to have a marginal change at best. It's a necessary evil, but it's it provides a lot of opportunity that otherwise just simply wouldn't be available. Yeah, and it sounds like, too, uh, based on what you're saying about your sister, there's a personal motivation behind seeing the science advance in a very significant way. Yeah, I mean, what exists currently is just not good enough. It's just not. So trying to move those kinds of things forward, and that's been a, a common thread and 
kind of all the research I've done, it's been in some way related to traumatic brain injury. So like with the exoskeletons, I got to build some cool rapid prototyping platforms. But at the end of the day, a lot of what we did was trying to find ways to help stroke survivors walk more effectively. You know, it's just a different type of traumatic brain injury, but it's definitely a traumatic brain injury. You know, what I do now is meant to help people with neuromuscular dysfunction. What I was doing in my postdoc was we ultimately found ways to apply it to a spinal cord injury. So, you know, a lot of the weird optogenetic, chemogenetic stuff that I sent you, that we actually found some medical applications for that, which I'm pretty proud of. Yeah, the more I'm kind of diving into this, the more I see it as, and one part I'm amazed that the the fact that we can use, and I keep confusing these because I'm so new to it, so please forgive me for my ignorance on all of this, but the optogenetic molecules, so to speak, how they work with light and everything, that's, that's just incredible to me. And just the scale too, I That's really, for me, what is the hardest to wrap my brain around is how small of a scale all this is really at. It's on the neuron level, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, do you mind if I give a quick primer on just kind of what optogenetics and chemogenetics are? Please, very much so. So the idea behind optogenetics, it's it's actually a pretty interesting one, and apologies in advance if I get part of the story wrong. Um, it's, it's not an easy story to track down, but the basic idea is some time ago, these guys were studying these phytoplankton, so very, you know, single-celled organisms basically that live in the ocean, and they have these light-sensitive channels on the exterior of their cells that allow them to kind of orient themselves relative to the surface and swim up or down. And, you know, based on the amount of light intensity they're getting, it can really drive a lot of their behavior. So it's just a light sensing channel. It's very different than what we have in our eyes, but it's the same kind of idea where a light stimulus turns into some sort of internal signal within the organism. And so some guys who are much more clever than I am thought, well, hey, we have this light sensing channel. It sure looks a lot like the the ion channels we have in our own neuron. I wonder if we could extract sort of the DNA that encodes for this within these phytoplankton and actually get that into, say, a mouse or whatever animal model they were working with. And it turns out you absolutely could. You could take these neurons, you expose them to a virus, a retrovirus that's engineered to insert this expression, the, the DNA that encodes for these proteins into your own DNA. And then you begin expressing them. And next thing you know, you have these light sensitive channels in neurons. And so it really accomplishes a couple of things. The first thing is, I'm going to go off on a little bit of a tangent here. So with a lot of brain-computer interfacing, we've gotten really good at listening to brains. There are now electrode systems that can be implanted in people that are stable. Like, we don't know how long they're stable for because they haven't become unstable yet, which is a huge step forward for the field. And they're really fine. You know, Elon Musk is trying to get into this area now with his whole, forget the name of his company. Oh, Neuralink, yeah. They do some cool stuff, but as of right now, it's only listening. If you actually want to interact with that system, you have to stimulate it. So you have to find some way to excite neurons and intelligently inject information that's encoded in a way that they can transmit it and understand it. The issue you run into there is when you start using electricity to excite neurons in the brain, Mm -hmm. you get what's called glial scarring is the technical term for it. And basically the idea is your brain does not like being stimulated electrically. So it forms scar tissue around the electrodes. And before you know it, they're virtually useless. The body has rejected them. 
Um, now, is that because the brain is already using electrical signals and you're kind of pumping them into overdrive or is it, or is there some other kind of reaction that's happening? So this analogy is, is, is not based on a lot of science, but you <laughs> and know, if that's too complicated to explain, it's fine. I, I'm just curious because I've heard of that. I was just curious to how it worked, but no, no, your brain absolutely uses electrochemical signals, but the electrochemical and electrical are two different things. I see. And so the way I would compare, like, so imagine the normal membrane channels in your ion, in your brain that actually coordinate a lot of the flow of electricity are just a door in your house. So electricity is the equivalent of kicking that door every time you want to open it. You're basically kicking it right at the doorknob. You're just being as forceful as possible. You're smashing it open. And yes, Mm. it does open the door. You've achieved your goal. But how many times can you kick that door open before the frame starts to wear down. And assuming you have a sentient house, your house now decides, well, you're not allowed to use this door anymore. We're going to put up a barrier that stops you from kicking this goddamn door. We're tired of this. Um, (laughs) It's a great analogy. (laughs) Yeah. So so with optogenetics, it's like using the doorknob. So you're using the same sort of chemical stimulus that would normally drive electrical activity in the brain. But now because you're not kicking this thing in, the brain's kind of like, oh yeah, doorknob, great. Like, we like doorknobs. That's not going to hurt the door. That's not going to hurt the door frame. You can use that all day. So that's really kind of the strength of something like optogenetics. A lot of people think, at least, that you won't get this sort of scarring and rejection because you're using a, a way of activating these neurons that's much more normal for the body. Instead of rapidly shifting voltages and currents within inside the neuron, you're actually pumping in sodium and potassium ions, which is a totally normal way for these things to turn on. And I'm going to try not to get too technical with this, but it's, it's a much more natural way for the neurons to be activated. And, and what I just said is probably not wrong, but not based on a ton of evidence. It's more intuition. So I don't, I don't want people to take that as, you know, sort of an absolute truth, but. You um, mean the concept of optogenetics or just the analogy you used or? The analogy, the concept I'm I'm, I'm fairly certain I'm I'm right about. (laughs) I was going to say, because optogenetics from what, from the small research I was looking into for the preparation for this episode, looks like the idea goes back as far as like Francis Crick, who invented the double helix or mapped it. The ways you integrate it go back that far. Optogenetics is a weird mashup of what I would call synthetic neuroscience, which is this idea that you're introducing sort of a synthetic, non-typical component into a neural system to manipulate it, and then just gene therapy. So this idea that viruses are actually pretty adept at getting their DNA inside of us and tricking us into replicating them and finding ways to reproduce themselves inside of people. It's a little scary, but it's definitely something that happens all the time. Flu virus does it. Any, any kind of virus you get can manipulate your DNA on some level. And from what I understand, too, and maybe this has changed, that most gene therapies in the U.S. aren't allowed, and there's maybe one or two in Europe that are allowed? So this is actually something that I, I'm confronting a lot now at work. My company doesn't actually develop gene therapy, but we're in competition with a lot of companies that do develop gene therapies. And so there's a lot of really tricky aspects to gene therapy. Unfortunately, some time ago, one of the earliest gene therapies that was available was um, one that was meant to cure a genetic type of blindness, if I'm remembering this correctly, and apologies if I'm not. Uh, I was a group at UPenn that was doing this study. And when you're going through any kind of human use 
sort of FDA approval type of process, what you have to do is you have a very well-defined, uh, what's typically referred to as a protocol or like a written series of steps that you will take in the course of your experiment and a written series of things you will do should you observe any bad effects. A lot of times you try to predict these, you really do the best you can. And there's legislative bodies like the FDA that look these over and approve these. And so one of the first people to get approval to do this, uh, unfortunately, went off their protocol. Uh, they weren't getting the results they wanted. And they thought, well, you know, I know what we said was safe, but here's what we're going to do. And this is a huge no-no, by the way. And we did it. And I pretty sure a couple kids died. And so that basically created a 10-year moratorium on anyone testing any kind of gene therapy in people. Really unfortunate, but it did happen. And so that set the field back probably a decade. But now there's a lot of gene therapies coming along. A lot of them are viral. So one of the things that's really hot these days is CRISPR. CRISPR is not viral, so it's a totally different mechanism, but it's also pretty poorly defined. A lot of the risk factors underlying it aren't well understood, and there's some evidence now to suggest that it's not nearly as accurate as may have been initially claimed. So there's the possibility of mutation. And so this is another challenge that comes with gene therapy. There's one mutation, you're fundamentally changing the genome, and it's remarkable how sensitive people can be to mutations because if the wrong mutation in the wrong place can cause all kinds of horrible cancers. And just that's a big problem in the gene therapy world is a lot of these viruses are what are called oncogenic, which basically just means cancer causing. And so you have to be very careful how you pick them. And there are what are called integrating viruses and non-integrating viruses. Most gene therapies these days are non-integrating. And what that means is instead of actually splicing themselves into your chromosomes so that when your cell divides, this mutation becomes permanent. That's integrating. Non-integrating is where basically you're pumping in a piece of what's called, the technical term is plasmid DNA. So it's basically a little circular piece of DNA that can be just kind of passively expressed by things in the, in the cell, but it doesn't actually integrate into your chromosomes. So it's kind of a crapshoot. Sometimes it gets replicated, sometimes it doesn't, but it never integrates. And after enough divisions, it just kind of goes away. And that's what a lot of modern gene therapy is, is this non-integrating sort of virus. And that's mostly what I've worked with as well, because it's, it's by far the safest form of virus to use for any sort of medical intervention. And I think one of the things that's a real challenge with this in, in terms of getting it approved is that your body is, has a very good immune system and it recognizes even these synthetic viruses that are specifically designed not to be pathogenic, not to cause any real problems. Your body can have a very strong reaction to them. And so right now I'm working at a company that's targeting Duchenne's muscular dystrophy as a first kind of therapeutic intervention for some of the stuff we're developing. And, and we're working with small molecules. And that's about all I can say about it. But a lot of our competitors are developing viruses. And it's kind of wild to read the sort of treatment regimes they have to do because they have to inject massive amounts of, of steroids and anti-inflammatories and all these kind of things that really depress the immune response to expose, in the case of Duchenne's muscular dystrophy, it's 
children to these live viruses. And I will just go ahead and say, I realize that like the idea of exposing children to this is, is quite morbid, but Duchenne's muscular dystrophy is not a disease where you live to adulthood many times. It's not that they're neglecting adult populations in favor of children. It's that this disease is lethal long before most of these people are adults. Uh, yeah. I mean, it sounds like it's a type of disease that you're trying to get it to adulthood to see where you could stomp it out for good. Yeah, or just improve quality of life, extend the window of good quality of life. One thing pharma companies get a lot of flack for is not creating cures, but creating treatments that mitigate symptoms. Unfortunately, it's not always possible to cure things. And so the best you can do is give somebody a comfortable and functional life for as long as you can. It's kind of, I think about HIV, it's kind of where that headed. I do volunteer testing at this place called the Center here in Orlando. And basically part of our spiel is to kind of sell it, so to speak, as more like diabetes, where it's something that's chronic and you need to keep up on medications. But if you do that and don't go off your specific cocktails, you'll be all right. You know, that's better than nothing, I think. Yeah. So it sounds like you're really between the viruses that you have to create uh, or modify rather between the immune system. It sounds like you're really swimming upstream here. Yes. In a lot of tissues, that's the case. Muscle tissue is one of your most metabolically active tissues. It's turning over all the time. Cells are dividing and regenerating. It's not a great target for a lot of these viruses, but neurons do not really divide that often at all. They're not turning over their genome frequently. Like They're relatively stable. So if the kinds of viruses I'm talking about that are sort of on the cusp of being introduced into the more common medical treatments would actually be very well suited for the nervous system. They would last a lot longer there than they would in almost any other tissue in your body. But the other thing for the nervous system that makes these viruses so interesting is that, you know, with electricity, it's completely non-selective. So like I work in the, in the periphery. So what that means is basically like nerve bundles that run down your arm. So I'm not in the, in the brain or anything, but this is true of the brain too, but it's, it's a bigger problem, I think, in the periphery. And the issue is that basically every neuron going down to your hand you know, runs through your shoulder. So if I take an electrode and I start stimulating pretty high up on your arm, I'm going to have no real ability to have any kind of fine control over which muscles I'm hitting or whether I'm just turning muscles on or I'm scrambling all of your reflexes or I'm turning on your pain sensing or I'm making you feel hot or cold or wet or any kind of thing that your brain senses. You can't really discriminate with these techniques. I mean, you you can sort of, but it's, and there are people who would argue this with me tooth and nail, but it's, it's crude. It's ugly. So the nice thing about these viruses is anytime you're expressing one of these proteins, you have what's called a promoter. And so what a promoter does is basically within a cell where the protein that comes after a promoter is needed, it can express that protein. And within cells where it's not needed, you know, it's just ignored. It's kind of like a red light, green light kind of things where some cells are like, yes, green light, express this, do it, do it, do it. And some cells are like, nope, red light, no, we don't want this. Just leave that alone. Because as you're probably aware, every cell in your body has your complete genome in it. And so if they were all expressing the same proteins, we'd just be a big, I don't know what we'd be. We wouldn't be what we are. <laughs> big ball of light that's always on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So... <laughs> Yeah. So the nice thing about these viruses is you can target certain subtypes of neurons. So the way your your nervous system actually avoids a lot of crosstalk is it uses 
different chemicals to communicate between different types of neurons. So you can have what are called cholinergic nerves. And so these respond to something called acetylcholine. It's how they know to turn on and fire, and they ex express a lot of proteins associated with this. And then there's gabinergic nerves, and they serve a whole different purpose a lot of times. And so if you can start to spot sort of the genetic and gene expression differences between these neurons that really aren't designed to talk to each other, normally with these viruses, what you can do is you can selectively express these light-activated proteins that allow you to turn these neurons on or off in a very selective way. So instead of, you know, me taking an electrode and stimulating somebody's sciatic nerve, which controls their whole leg and, you know, them feeling like they have pins and needles, but their knee extended so great, but they have mm -hmm. no idea what's happening and they're feeling a weird sort of pain-ish sensation. What I've heard it described as is, is pins and needles. I mean, you know, like when your arm falls asleep or something, like to, yeah. the, to the point where you can't feel anything. And then when it wakes up, it's like that weird, horrible sensation that is really difficult to tolerate for any extended period. That's what it typically feels like to have your nerve stimulated. Mm -hmm. So while you might, you know, say be able to open or close your hand or something through some kind of targeted stimulation, you don't know what's going on. All you feel is this weird, horrible sensation of your hand waking up from a horrible deep sleep. So with optogenetics, you can avoid that. I almost think of a graphic equalizer. If you think of all the frequency bands, you can use your forearm and just shove them all up <laughs> and you'll, it'll technically be louder, right? Uh, yeah. But you're not getting the details basically. Yeah, so that's a, that's a great way to think about it. And you could think about your different sort of sensory modalities and things like that operating on different frequency bands. And so just imagine this as a way to target a specific frequency band. So, you know, maybe we want to shine blue light on a neuron and only activate things between 20 and 60 hertz. Like, we can do that. Mm. And we could ignore everything below that and everything above that. Or I guess if you're used to audio, you're probably in the kilohertz range. You know, it's, it's this really cool technique where you can selectively activate these neurons. And then it gets even more interesting because going back to frequency bandwidths, actually, there are different classes of these, they're called opsins. So these light activated proteins. So you can have some that are activated by red light or yellow light or green light or blue light or ultraviolet light. And so what you get is this way to really be able to manipulate multiple sensory modalities in a really meaningful way, but targeting them specifically. So if you wanted to turn on somebody's sense of pressure, like, I don't, I don't know how you would do this. This is only theoretical because I don't understand the genetics of the mm -hmm. system nearly well enough to do it. But in theory, if you could find a gene exclusive to your pressure sensing neurons, you can only turn on a sense of pressure. So in a, in a prosthetic, you know, you might have a cuff that goes around your whole nerve when you shine light on it. All it tells you is information about pressure. It doesn't activate pain sensing. It doesn't turn the muscles on. It doesn't scramble your unconscious reflexes that make your arms do weird shit. Like it just, it just makes you feel pressure. And so, you know, and, and one thing I see a lot in, in sort of transhumanism kind of stuff is this idea that we're going to have prosthetics where they're better than your normal arm. And we're very far away from that. Very, very yeah. far. Yeah. It, everything you've mentioned so far has more or less been something to repair or make normal the processes of the brain or, or certain muscles or things like that. Because there's this idea in transhumanism that something can be extension or an, an enhancement or it can be corrective. So far, I think most things have been on the corrective side. None of this stuff has really gotten to the rubber meets the road sort of point yet. And that's been a big challenge of it. So like when it comes to optogenetics, there's a lot of really unexpected challenges that when I was trying to work with this technology, I ended up facing. So the cool thing that optogenetics can do is it can allow you the ability to selectively manipulate the nervous system 
in really fine and controlled ways. And, you know, so if you're talking about like a brain computer interface that can simulate a normal, you know, touch experience, like this is, this is the only way I can think of that you're ever going to achieve it, at least based on modern technology. But there's all kinds of weird technical hurdles. So like one of the issues is LEDs. It's primary what thing you use to stimulate these. Um, LEDs are about 50% efficient. So half the power you dump into them is light. The other half is heat. If you get too much heat too close to a neuron, guess what? You cook it. And when I was working with this, I was working in mice. Their sciatic nerve, which is, I don't know if it's the biggest, but it's got to be one of the biggest nerve bundles in their body. It's only about 500 microns. But it turns out you can only get about 120 microns into a nerve bundle with blue light before you're generating so much heat from the LEDs that you just cook the nerves. So you get about a total of 240 millimeters in if you've got like a, something surrounding the circumference. That's half the depth of the neuron. And, and nerves are weird. Like the, everything's kind of mixed together and they're rotating in and out towards the surface, towards the middle of the nerve. So it's a total crapshoot what you're going to hit, what you're going to turn on. Whether or not something's close enough to the surface to even turn it on, you might have great gene expression and exactly the cell population you want to hit. But if it's deep in the nerve, you can't touch it right now with, with a lot of the current techniques. And so a lot of technical hurdles there. So it sounds like we're still fairly limited from a mechanical perspective. Yeah. I mean, there, there's a lot of just real practical limitations to this. And, you know, if you think about mm -hmm. a human sciatic nerve, like I have no idea how big that is. But if you can only get 120 microns in, you're probably not even hitting 10% of the damn thing. You know, that's a big challenge. Getting viral therapies in humans is a big challenge. Getting them to work properly is a challenge. Suppressing immune response enough to make them take hold is a challenge. You know, there's there's a lot of real issues with this. And, there, and people are making progress on them every day. But these are just big, hard problems. And it's one of those things where there's a lot of people who have this pie-in-the-sky vision where they'll they'll talk about, you know, oh, one day you'll have a prosthetic that is, is better than your arm. And I genuinely hope one day we do have those, but there's a lot in the way of that right now. Um, and there's a lot of progress that needs to be made before that's even a reasonably feasible proposal. Yeah. It's like better in what way too, that you can somehow have more sensation or maybe it's connected to some other neurons that to give you some dopamine boost or just that it's made of titanium. You know, we already have prosthetics that are more rugged, obviously, than our flesh. <laughs> so... The ruggedness is not a problem, but now that you've brought up materials, that's, a, that's another interesting challenge, particularly in the exoskeleton arena. The real perks of working in, and this is going to sound a bit more, but one of the perks of working in prosthetics is when somebody's missing a limb, you know, let's say you're missing your leg below the knee, you've got 8, 10, 12 pounds to work with before you've really added so much mass to the system that the body can't tolerate it. With exoskeletons, the unfortunate reality of that situation is that you have an intact limb. And so oftentimes the weight you can add without really totally messing up the mechanics of the system is very minimal. And so when I was working in a group that developed exoskeletons, um, I wasn't the lead on a lot of these projects, but I did help out a lot with a lot of the carbon fiber fabrication stuff we did. But we used carbon fiber as kind of our, our primary material because there is not much that is lighter and stiffer than carbon fiber. Unfortunately, it is a horrible material to work with because it's, there's a lot of challenges with it. But like when we were yeah, building- expensive too. Well, so actually the raw materials are not that expensive. You can buy carbon sheets, you know, of just like cross-woven carbon fiber, pretty cheap. I would say 
the raw material that goes into like an exoskeleton or a, a good prosthetic socket, probably in the hundreds of dollars at most. Um, the reason these things cost tens of thousands of dollars is the labor cost associated with it. So I'll, I'll give you a, an example of this. When I worked a lot with carbon fiber and exoskeletons, you know, one of the issues is when you get carbon fiber, it's like a flexible sheet of just carbon threads. And so what you have to do is kind of layer this with fiberglass, introduce an epoxy resin that cures everything and hardens it and turns it into the carbon fiber we're all kind of familiar with. And so that process is called annealing. And un unfortunately, the temperatures reached in this process are extremely high. So if you couldn't take carbon fiber, put it straight on somebody's leg and cure it and make it a hardened carbon fiber that we're all familiar with because you would absolutely cook their leg in the process. There are ways of doing it at lower temperatures, but it takes days. So nobody's going to sit still for that long. <laughs> so what you have to do is you have to take a mold of the person's leg, which this is another really weird nitty gritty technical thing that you would really only know if you worked in this field, I suspect, but your leg volume changes a lot. Like if you're sitting for a long time or laying, a lot of the blood runs out of your legs. The volume is reduced. The minute you stand up and start moving around, you know, a lot more blood gets pumped into your legs. The volume increases. So you can't have a perfectly rigid thing that is going to be comfortable in a lot of different positions. So you have to take a mold of their leg as best you can, and then you have to lay your carbon fiber up on it. And the other weird thing is you, we use these some kind of polyvinyl something bags, basically. So you, you have to create a vacuum seal to get carbon fiber to anneal properly which is a whole other can of worms. Um, but you basically have to make a cast of a person's leg, put like one part of this, this, this like bag over it, lay your carbon fiber up on top of it, lay another bag over it, vacuum seal it inside there, and then inject a bunch of resin and then work that into the system. Just basically like the way we used to do it was just dragging a rope over it. Like <laughs> take, a, <laughs> take a rope in both hands and just kind of work it like you would a knot in somebody's muscle. Like it, yeah. you know? Yeah. And... That takes several, several hours and then you have to let it cure and usually just do that overnight because it takes a while. It's a very high temperature process, like I said before. And oh. then you got to get it off the mold. You got to shave it down. A lot of times you're integrating parts into it as you're molding the carbon fiber, you know, things like little bolt holes or screws or, you know, things like that that'll allow you to actually mount some kind of hardware to it. I mean, it's, it's an incredibly labor intensive process. Honestly, Ben, it kind of sounds like you're describing a, a sculpture. It sounds like you're making art a little more than you're making science. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's a totally fair way to describe this process, um, especially, you know, the group I worked in, we were usually building exoskeletons custom fit to an individual and getting a good fit with the proper material properties that made it rigid enough to transmit forces effectively, but flexible enough to fit comfortably and all this kind of stuff. I mean, it was just, it's, it's very much an art form. Surgery is very much the same way. There's a lot of art in science. And I think that's something that gets lost a lot, especially when, when talking about this kind of thing, even with prosthetics, you know, a lot of times the, the artificial arm or leg or whatever it is you're replacing, like, that's an off-the-shelf part, but what a lot of people don't know about prosthetics, and this is an ugly secret that I think, frankly, deserves more attention than it gets, is that a lot of times they're mounted with a vacuum seal. So basically, somebody's built a, a carbon fiber sleeve to a high enough tolerance 
that you can just stick it on the arm and it's kind of like a suction cup. And that's all that's holding it on there. There's sometimes some straps involved, but like those don't always do a whole lot. Um, Yeah, you know, come to think of it, my dad, he was a type 2 diabetic and he had lost a leg. And his prosthetic, it was more or less just this rubber cup that he would put on his limb and then it would kind of suction on to his his foot. And I think that was it. And if he didn't get that good seal, you know, it was kind of uncomfortable and weird the whole time. Yeah. Or your leg just falls off. Right. (laughs) You know, which I hate to sound kind of callous about that, but like that does happen. You know, if you watch like a Paralympic sprint or something, there's usually at least one guy in that race who loses a prosthetic. It just flies right off. Yeah. And, you know, there's probably a danger to creating some type of screw and nut situation without some kind of painful surgery or, you know, big cost attached. Well, so that's actually something I do know a little bit about, just kind of peripherally. Um, but there are new techniques for this. So it's a, it's a technique called osseointegration. And so the idea behind this is, so titanium is a remarkably what's called biocompatible material, just meaning that like bacteria doesn't grow on it. Human tissues seem to like it. It doesn't get rejected from the body very easily. So what people are doing now Um, I knew a guy when I was in graduate school who was doing this in cats. You can find videos of these cats on the internet. But basically, if they lost a limb, what he would do is he would take a detailed MRI of their bone fragment that was left. And then he had a 3D titanium printer. Pretty sure the serial number on it was two. So it was a pretty... (laughs) Um, pretty new device when he was using it. What he would do is he would 3D print basically a titanium rod where the end was printed in such a way that it would easily fit onto the bone, the the bone fragment that was left. And then they would etch this, you know, in a way that would encourage bone to grow into it. And eventually what you would get to is your bone would grow onto this titanium rod that would then poke out of your limb fragment that you could then mount a prosthetic to. So one of the major, major issues with prosthetics, um, and you may be aware of this because of your dad, is that you're supporting all your body weight on what is normally a pretty squishy tissue. It's really not designed for load bearing. Your bones are designed for that, but your muscles and your soft tissue really aren't. So especially in the case of like limb, you know, leg prosthetics, having to bear all your weight on a soft tissue is or can be incredibly painful. And it really limits the amount of time you can be on your feet. It limits the number of steps you can take in a given day. I mean, it's, it's a real problem. And so this technique that actually allows you to mount a prosthetic directly to bone seems to really mitigate a lot of these issues. And if you Google osseointegration in cat, I bet you could probably find videos of these cats running around that have these weird titanium stumps for legs, but man, they're getting around great. They're not having any problems. They're, they're happy little kitties. So this osseointegration, is it currently being tried on humans or is it, is it in the prototype stage? Or? So I haven't been very close to this kind of research in a while, but I do remember hearing that there was somewhere in the EU that had approved this in humans and they were doing this type of prosthetic mounting on, I think it was below the knee amputees mm-hmm. in, in the EU. Uh, once you get above the knee, there's a whole bunch of other weird mechanical considerations you have to start thinking about. But below the knee is probably the simplest prosthetic leg that exists other than like a yeah. prosthetic big toe, maybe. Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, it seems so intuitive to the idea of it. And just the fact that if you had something that was directly connected to your bone, just the sensation of it, the feel of it would be so much more intuitive and, and uh, tactile. And Yeah, there's that aspect. And there's the just the lack of pain that comes with it, too. 
which I think is something that's often really not focused on in a lot of these sort of pie in the sky sci-fi technology communities is, you know, yes, a titanium skeleton is awesome, but, you know, (laughs) these people are out here experiencing a ton of pain every day. Like they should be the first ones to get titanium skeletons and it's not going to improve their bone integrity. It's just going to make it so they can walk around without feeling a lot of pain all the time. Just gets them back to normal. Yeah, gets gets you back as close to baseline as you can get. And while we're on the subject of prosthetics, I wanted to segue a little bit into the project that you worked on. And I'll put this in the show notes too, if if that's all right. And the title of it is Reducing the Energy Cost of Human Walking Using an Unpowered Exoskeleton. I definitely helped with that project. I was in the lab. I built a lot of those exoskeletons. You'll probably notice I am not an author on that, which I'm okay with. That wasn't my main PhD project. My personal PhD work got a lot of good attention and everything too. But um, yeah, that was a a really cool device. And it was what I consider to be a a, a truly bio-inspired device. Um, And this is making a lot of inroads these days is looking at biological mechanisms for things and trying to replicate that in a device of some sort. So the basic idea behind this, and and this is something that I'm sure not a lot of people are aware of, but, you know, are you familiar with your Achilles tendon? Yeah, I think so. So it's this big tendon that goes from basically your calf muscles down to your heel. I'd say it's probably about a third of the length of your calf. And traditionally, tendons were thought of as this tissue that just connects muscle to bone. So it's it's the way that your muscle can contract and transmit force to your skeleton, which is how you move. And a bunch of really clever scientists started looking at things that run, things that walk, and started realizing like, hey, this shouldn't be as efficient as it is. What's going on here? And what they figured out is that at least for your calves, that's not all there is to the story. Your calf muscles aren't sort of the only thing that are articulating your ankle joint. So it turns out they have this long tendon that connects them to bone. And the basic idea is, is it's kind of like a regenerative breaking mechanism where when your foot hits the ground, you turn your muscles on in a way that's kind of coordinated with the movement of your body mass so that your muscle just generates a bunch of force, but it doesn't actually change length really at all. And your natural body mechanics plus this force are coordinated in such a way that instead you end up stretching your tendon and then it ends up recoiling. So instead of losing a bunch of energy to muscle lengthening and shortening and lengthening and shortening, your tendons are acting as kind of this means of storing and returning energy by lengthening and recoiling throughout the gait cycle. They're basically just big biological springs. So think about it like jumping on a pogo stick. Um, You know, it would be insane to tell someone, okay, you have to jump as high as that guy on the pogo stick every time he jumps. So, you know, you could get like an elite athlete out there and some like doughy 12-year-old from Kansas. And this doughy 12-year-old from Kansas is going to be able to outperform this elite athlete in a series of jumps because he has this spring that he's able to exploit to store and return energy when he's jumping. So, but if you had like an elite high jumper and this doughy kid on a pogo stick, the doughy kid on the pogo stick is probably going to be able to jump higher and for longer than the elite athlete if you just make them jump over and over and over again. That's kind of what's going on in your tendons. And so the idea behind this exoskeleton was, well, hey, you know, your muscles turning on, it's generating high force. It's stretching the spring. What if we had just sort of a clutch and a spring that could mimic that action. So basically, not to diminish the ingeniousness of the design of this, but basically what they built is an elaborate seatbelt clutch 
so that knows when to lock out and knows when to allow you to move freely. But in this case, it knew to lock out at certain types of the gate times in the gate cycle when the mechanics were really advantageous to storing energy in a spring, and it knew to disengage and allow the energy stored in that spring to dump back into the system at you know, the times when your body would be doing that naturally with your Achilles tendon. So this was basically like an external Achilles tendon that they built. And one of the nice things about it is if it's all mechanical, it can be very lightweight. It doesn't require batteries. And you can basically replicate what your tendon's doing naturally to make you a very efficient walker um, with mm. this external device. Yeah, it's, it's really incredible how intuitive this thing is. And I implore anybody listening to, again, check out the show notes and, and take a look at even just the pictures. I mean, how simple the device is and how it works. That's really what caught my eye. And it's, it's really a first of its kind device. It was the first device that's entirely portable. You know, you could walk out of the lab in this thing if you wanted to. Walk down the street and it, it would work the same way. So did you get a chance to try this on then? Oh, to, yeah, I did. give it a test run? <laughs> I, was, I was definitely a test dummy for this on multiple, multiple awesome. occasions. That's one of the fun things about being in a lab like that is, you know, you're kind of the test dummy for everything you're building. When you put it on and you start walking with it, you don't really notice that it's doing a whole lot. You don't really even have to think about using it which mm -hmm. is very cool. And when you really notice that you're wearing it, well, that you were wearing it is when you take it off and you take your first step and it feels like <laughs> somebody just Charlie horsed you right in your calf muscle because all of a sudden <laughs> there's this huge unexpected burden on your walking that your body is completely adapted to. Yeah, that's literally what I was going to ask next is how that feeling was, how that transition was. And I imagine it was going to be kind of brutal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's a bit of a brutal transition, but it's one of those things where it's it's really kind of an aha moment because you're walking, you're walking, you're like, I don't know, is this thing even doing anything? I'm hearing some clicking, like, I don't know what's going on. And then you take it off and you're like, holy shit, that thing was like doing half the work of my calf muscles and... Now they really weren't ready for, for my full body weight. Yeah, I'm sure there's plenty of applications for this. I'm just curious, you know, I apologize. They're probably laid out somewhere in the paper. I just overlooked them or didn't get to them. What are some of like the main ones that you've seen come out of this technology? So not a lot has come out of it yet. That device was much more of a, a proof of concept kind of thing. Just to show that you could in fact, reduce the metabolic cost of movement with an unpowered device. Because up until that point, I think there had been only one device that had actually done that. And it was a, a pneumatic device that required, you know, a set of blow valves that weighed 20 pounds and an air reservoir that probably weighed another 60 or 70. And, you know, the, the, the device itself was pretty light. But if you tried to walk away from it, and your air hose got disconnected, like that's the end of that. That's a useless device now. So this was really more of a proof of concept device, but getting into where it could be applied, that was a lot more what I did as part of my PhD. So the, the guy who developed this, whose primary project this was, his was kind of a proof of concept. Mine was more exploratory and like, how do we use this? And so it turns out that the, the material properties of your limbs are very important to proper function. So you've probably noticed that when people walk or they jump or, you know, a lot of sort of steady state movement is rhythmic. Um, so it occurs at a regular frequency. I mean, obviously there are exceptions to this, but, you know, if you're just walking down the street, the rhythm of your footfalls is going to be very consistent. And so a lot of what I did, and this is that blog post link I sent you was looking at like, okay, well, we know we move rhythmically, but why 
do we move at the frequencies that we do? Why do we move with the rhythms that we do? And a lot of that's tied back to the material properties of your limbs. One thing that this device does is it fundamentally changes the stiffness, which is an important material property of your limb. And so without going into a whole bunch of really nitty gritty technical stuff, you know, a lot of my PhD work was focused around like, what can you measure to identify an ideal frequency of movement for a person or whatever. And then thinking about those material properties, how do those change with aging or after a stroke or things like that? So it turns out as people age, they're, I might get this wrong now because it's been a ways out of having done this work, but I think they're like their muscles get less stiff, their tendons get more stiff and the material properties in their limbs change. And so they sort of move away from using these elastic tissues, which is what really drives a lot of this rhythmic behavior. And they move towards using more active tissues. So if you watch an old person walk, you know how they kind of shuffle. So they're using their hips a ton. Your hips are not a very efficient joint, but you can control them really well. And a lot of the reason they do that is because the material properties in their lower limb and their calf muscles and their Achilles tendons, you know, even in their thigh muscles and like their knee tendons, those have changed pretty substantially as part of the natural aging process. And then the other issue is they lose a lot of their neural sensing abilities. So their, their reflexes don't work nearly as well as they did when they were younger. And so they don't have really have a way to retune their system to exploit tendons to cycle a bunch of energy. And instead, they have to produce just all of that energy and muscle at every stride. So their walking becomes a lot less efficient. And so, you know, one thing I kind of proposed was a, this conceptual framework where you could measure somebody's material properties in their limbs, you could look at their natural movement frequency. And if there's a mismatch there, which there is in like stroke, spinal cord injury, peripheral nerve injury, aging, a whole bunch of different pathologies, then you can slap one of these devices on them, assuming they need to be stiffened. You can kind of retune their limb material properties around the neural controller they're already using. And, and the idea being that you might actually be able to get them back to a much more efficient type of walking. One of the things that happens when you stop using tendons properly is your movement becomes far, far less efficient. So you can't walk as far, you can't walk for as long. So essentially you're trying to transfer, like you mentioned, uh, older folks using their hips a little more, that energy and impact to the places they belong. Exactly. The other aspect of it is the way their brain is controlling their body is mismatched. And so you can't really control what their brain is doing, but you can control the mechanics of their body. And so if you can match those body mechanics to what their brain is already doing, now you've got yourself something that might actually make a difference. You're not requiring them to relearn how to walk. You're letting them use the strategy they've already learned and just making it way more efficient. That makes sense. Because yeah, I know you mentioned the, the natural resonance of the biological system and getting those things in sync. You, you can think about it kind of like a tuning fork, but one that moves very slowly. So like you can think of your brain as kind of the pitch and, you know, your biological muscle and tendon systems as kind of this tuning fork. And so ideally you want to match the pitch in your brain to the frequency that this tuning fork is going to be really receptive to. And basically the more that fork is humming and responding to your pitch, the more efficient your movement is. And so the problem in a lot of these elderly people is that the pitch they're humming and the pitch this fork is tuned for are mismatched. So they can hum all day long and they're not actually going to reap any benefit out of this tuning mechanism. But if you can run their voice through some kind of modulator or in this case, what we would be doing is changing the tuning fork to match the pitch of their voice. Now you can cause it to resonate 
and and really get a lot of energy cycling in this system. So has this um, moved towards any type of application or is it still in the, the theoretical phase or? It's still in the theoretical phase. Um, so one of the things that is, is going to be a major, something that's going to hamstring the process, the progress of a lot of these technologies is the FDA approval process. And I'm not saying that to criticize the FDA approval process. I think that's a very important process, but it's a complicated process. And it hasn't always kept up with kind of bleeding edge technology. Do you know who Dean Kamen is? I don't believe so. So he's most, I guess, infamous would be the proper word for inventing the Segway. Oh, okay. (laughs) Um, Now, the Segway is one of many things he's created. Just to give him his proper due, I'm pretty sure he invented the flexible heart stent, the wearable insulin pump, the home dialysis machine. He runs a very successful aerospace company. He founded First Robotics, if you're familiar with that. So this guy is is really kind of a a Thomas Edison of our era. He's also built something called the DECA arm, D-E-K-A arm. Definitely look that up. It's the most advanced prosthetic I think I've ever seen. It's It's an upper limb prosthetic, but... I got to. I was fortunate enough to see him speak at a conference some time ago, and a lot of his his talk focused on what's going on with the FDA approval process and kind of barriers for truly groundbreaking technology. Um, and so, a lot of people don't know this, but the Segway was not originally some stupid thing for tourists to tool around town on. It was originally designed as a self balancing wheelchair that could hold whoever was sitting in it upright and could climb stairs. I, I really, really love his design process. One of the, if you ask people in wheelchairs what they miss most, it's being able to stand up and look someone in the eye. So when he was designing this, he wanted people to be upright. He wanted them to be able to traverse, you know, really complex terrain. And this device could do all of it. I mean, it's a really impressive wheelchair. And I, I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head. Maybe I can look it up for you after this because there are videos of it and stuff. But he took this to the FDA and he said, look, I've got this thing that just significantly enhances quality of life, quality of interpersonal interaction. It allows them to access terrain they could not previously access. This is a really important piece of technology. I need you to approve this. And the FDA basically said, no, we're sorry. This really, truly is an amazing piece of technology, but the motors, the actuators in this, they're too powerful. The people who would use a device like this, they don't have the physical capability to escape from this if they need to. This thing malfunctions. There's just a tremendous, tremendous potential, significant bodily harm to these people. And, you know, they're not wrong, but me being an engineer and, and a bit of a Dean Kamen fanboy, I'd say, well, if anybody's going to design this and it's going to work well and it's going to be safe, it's going to be him. <laughs> like, you got to listen to this guy. But he said they rejected that. And what he was talking about was, was kind of lessons he'd learned through the FDA approval process. And so the FDA has this really interesting thing. They have different classes of devices. Um, and the class, the higher the class, the greater the risk category, or maybe it's the reverse, I can't remember. But they have this caveat where if you can show that your device is safer than something in a lower category than the one they've placed you in, you're automatically put into that category. The Segway was born because this wheelchair didn't make it through the FDA approval process, but he invented this this DECA arm device, which is truly a fantastic device. I mean, there's videos of guys that can lift, you know, a 15-pound weight with it, and they can also pick up a grape without smashing it. It's it's a really cool device. Sounds so, expensive, too. It is not cheap. The, mil- <laughs> the military is really doing a lot of the best research into prosthetics, and that's who funds a lot of this. Just because so many people are losing limbs now that yeah. trauma surgery and all this has gotten better, you know, they, they survive, but their quality of life has diminished significantly because they've lost limbs and stuff anyway. They're funding a lot of this. It is not a cheap 
prosthetic. You're absolutely correct. But when he went to the FDA to start trying to get this into people, they basically said, you know, again, gosh, like this thing is an incredibly powerful device. It's very dangerous to someone who has limited physical capability who might be using it. But this time around, he managed to go back through the FDA catalog and find a prosthetic chainsaw in a lower risk category than they had placed (laughs) this arm in. And so he basically said like, well, you've got to be kidding me. Like surely a prosthetic chainsaw is more dangerous than this thing that can pick up a grape without crushing it. And so he, they said, you know, you're right. And so now this device is actually something that is being tested and used in humans to this day. Well, it's it's good that the FDA understands and recognizes precedence. You know, that's at least helpful. They're not just saying no out of safety's sake, which does make sense. They have to look at those things, right? Yeah, I mean, they're really the wet blanket on medical innovation by design. And now working in the pharma world and, and just knowing everything that can go wrong, it's amazing that more things don't go wrong with a lot of pharmaceuticals and medical devices and things like that. I mean, it's, it's really pretty amazing that by the time something makes it to market, there's very rarely any gaping flaws in these technologies. And I would definitely credit the FDA with that. But from time to time, they can be a real innovation stifler. And in terms of net benefit, I really don't know where it falls, but I, I certainly understand the purpose and the, the, the driving philosophy behind a lot of what they do. Yeah, I'm a huge fan. You know, it's when I always hear about massive cuts, the first three things I think of are national parks, FDA, and the EPA. I mean, well, the national parks I just really enjoy, of course, and yeah. I feel like those are probably the least partisan thing I can think of. But the other two just cover overall well-being of humanity. Like as far as greater good goes, I'd say they have a fairly good track record. It, they definitely do. There's some some issues I take with the the way the FDA works and pharmaceuticals versus devices, but those are mm. much more nuanced kind of things. Overall, I think they're overwhelmingly good things. This comic I see online from time to time, and it's somebody shouting down like a an environmentalist who's pushing for like cleaner air, cleaner water, cleaner transportation technology, and and the guy's saying, well, you know, what if what if we do all this stuff and and we make the world better for no good reason? Like, it, yeah. yeah, it's just kind of one of those things where like, how can you argue with clean air, clean water, safe medical devices? It's yeah, I always hear that argument a lot with regards to um, climate change. You know, what if we make all these integrative technologies, the, the non one size fits all solution of coal or, or uh, nuclear or gas? Like we are using wind and, and solar and all these things together. Well, what if we boom the economy accidentally? What if it's not even real? Well, hey, great. We just have all this uh, surplus to go around. Oh, well. Like, I, I, don't, I don't see the downside of it. but um, Positive nihilism, man. I'm all about it. <laughs> <laughs> I like that phrasing. That's a good one. <laughs> yeah. So does the FDA, is it the process that you take their guidelines and you try to fall as much as you can within them, then present it to them, then they say yay or nay? Or is there a kind of note system? Is it, is it like collaborative at all? Or is it just a big rubber stamp? You know, that's an interesting question. And I'm, I'm fairly new to the process of actually really interacting with these guys in a meaningful way. So kind of take this with a bit of a grain of salt. There are certain standard safety things they want to see. So like right now, we're trying to get something approved for like a first in human use. Um, and this is coming from the pharmaceutical side. So the thing we're doing right now is trying to figure out kind of the 
toxicity limits and safe dosing ranges of our drugs. And so there's no like hard set limit on like a maximum dose or anything, but we need to figure out what is a safe and effective dose. And so if we came to the FDA and said, we have a drug that does X, Y, Z, you know, we've pinned down the mechanism, we know how it works. We have no idea what a safe dose is or whether or not it's going to have any off-target effects or whether or not it's going to cause some sort of peripheral toxicity. Well, they're going to tell you to fuck off. They don't want any part of that. So there are some kind of standard data you have to collect in order to even begin sort of talking with them. But then my understanding of the process is, and again, I'm going to just reiterate that I'm fairly new to this, that there's a real sort of risk versus reward component to it. So with Duchenne's muscular dystrophy, I'm not going to name names of companies, but my understanding is that there is a drug that's in, I think, phase two or phase three, which is pretty late stage. They're actually treating patients with this. that doesn't really seem to have any effect, any therapeutic effect. But because there's no known effective treatment and because there was a lot of pressure from the patient population to try this and it seemed like, if nothing else, it was safe. They just let them do it. Uh, They let them push forward with it. And I honestly don't know how I feel about that because on the one hand, you have a truly desperate patient population that really needs something to work. On the other hand, all scientific evidence points towards this probably doesn't work. And that's with the caveat that You do your best to predict what's going to happen in a human prior to putting something in a human, but everyone knows that humans are different than pigs or dogs or monkeys or whatever sort of higher order organism that you try to test this in that's as close to a human as you can get. And so there's always going to be unexpected outcomes. I mean, not always, but nobody is surprised by the unexpected, I guess is what I'll say. And it could work. There's no reason to think, like in theory, this should do something based on all available evidence. It doesn't really, but because the greatest risk is, you know, it doesn't work and the disease progresses as it did before, why not give it a try? Now, when you when you get into diseases that have known effective treatments, that goes out the window. That's no longer a thing. They're no longer like, oh, well, maybe it'll work. Let's see. It's more of like a it better be better than the gold standard or we're not even going to bother with it. So it's a complicated landscape. For example, if there's somebody with some kind of cancer that already had some fairly good treatments, protocols with it. But then if somebody came and said, well, we have this other thing. It's it's very experimental. It's very risky. Yeah, it's not only a big question mark for the doctors to even suggest that, but for the patient too, because it's essentially a large-scale mystery box, right? You can take door number one, two, or three, or the mystery box. So, and there's there's some part of our psychology that's that's tuned a little bit to that because we want uh, we want to feel that we're the exception. So that, that kind of complicates things. Yeah, and, and cancer is an interesting one. So I actually went through this with my dad not too long ago. So in his case, he had pancreatic cancer, which is basically untreatable at this point. He did not survive it. But, you know, we, we basically kind of knew from the outset that it was a death sentence unless we could try something outside the scope of what was currently available. And, and the interesting thing about cancer was they were more than willing to let you do that. But first you had to try the things that that already existed, that they kind of knew to be safe and hopefully effective. So like in his case, he had to go through a couple rounds of standard chemo before he was eligible to participate in a truly novel clinical trial. 
And, you know, in the case of something like cancer, I, I get that. Like, basically, they want to make sure that whatever you have is non-responsive to conventional treatments. Because if it is, that's the safest and most effective way to treat you. But if it's not, now it's time to go off the farm a little bit and see what's actually going on and, and try something new and unique. And I think that's something that's, that's a bit unique to cancer. If you have, say, like you brought up HIV earlier, if your HIV is basically below the detection limit, but there might be a cure out there, they're probably not going to even bother with the cure unless it's known to be as safe and effective as whatever you're doing to manage it normally. So the people who are going to be the guinea pigs for that are people who, for whatever reason, their HIV can't be controlled well with conventional treatments. It's going to take longer to get that cure and, and accumulate the data you need to say like, hey, this is... We know it's safe and we know it's truly effective, but in the meantime, if people are living long, normal, healthy lives with a treatment, you know, what's the downside of not giving them this thing you think might be a cure? It can be a complicated and kind of nuanced process. And then the other part about it that's really crazy to me, and this is a difference between pharmaceuticals and devices, is in pharmaceuticals, if you take a drug and something bad happens, they basically say, you know, unless there's really good evidence to the contrary, Obviously, there's something wrong with your drug. We're going to halt this right here. We're just going to shut this down. But with devices, the burden of proof is kind of the exact opposite, where you basically have to be able to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the device is what caused the issue. So, you know, in that case, we don't know what caused it, but we're pretty sure it wasn't the device is an acceptable answer. But in pharmaceutical world, it's saying we don't know what caused it, but we're pretty sure it wasn't the drug is just not okay. And then I, what do you think the, what's the reason for that difference? I mean, I honestly couldn't tell you to me, it doesn't make a lot of sense when I hear it. And I don't have a lot of experience in device world. So I don't know what the justification for that is, but this is based on things I've you know heard on NPR, which I, I trust is a good news source and just kind of broad exposure to the device world. But, and I'm going to get, be getting a lot more exposure to this in my new job. Uh, I'll be working primarily on devices, but I can't think of a good justification for that. I just ask, cause yeah, it does seem strange on the face of it that they would think worse of. I guess things that are more chemical based, right? Like I think that just has a natural instinctive fear inside of people to begin with. And then you just keep scaling that up. Of course, with pharmaceuticals, it's a whole different ballgame. Part of the reason for this is with a device, you know where you put it, you know what it does. Like with an insulin pump, you know, it's just pumping insulin into your body and monitoring your blood sugar. And we have a pretty good idea of what insulin does. So you're not super worried about it, but with like a novel chemical, you can try your damnedest, but you're never going to figure out exactly where it goes and exactly what it does in every tissue in your body. I've been privy to this process. It's an insane process trying to parse that out. Well, I think we're winding down a little bit. I just want to get your thoughts real quick on just the state. I know we kind of talked a bit at the top and now I'd like to talk a bit at the bottom about kind of transhumanism and, and where you think your work may fit in it, or maybe it doesn't at all. It kind of sounds like since we're so far from any type of the notions that come from, you know, modern transhumanist thought, it almost seems like I would, at least if it were me, I'd be tempted to kind of have a little contempt for it because it's so, I don't want to say out there, but I mean, out there in the sense that it's so far away from us, it, it seems kind of moot to talk about. We could, we could spend our time better on things like the FDA or legislation and, you know, things that would further what we already are doing. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't think it's a bad thing to dream big. And I love the enthusiasm surrounding a lot of 
what I will call theoretical technologies. But anytime you really indulge those kind of fantasies too much, I think the end result is, is frustration with the state of things as they exist currently. And so if you were to ask me, could I download my consciousness with current technology? I would say, no, absolutely not. Like, yeah, not even close. (laughs) Not even close. Like we have really good high density electrode arrays that can do single neuron recordings and that can sit in your body for a lifetime. They can cover maybe like a cubic centimeter of your brain, which is a small, small fraction of what's actually going on in there. If you look at like Elon Musk's, I keep wanting to call it a neural lace. That's not what it's called. That's from a sci-fi series that I like to read. I forget what he called, Neuralink. You know, he's got these awesome flexible electrodes that can be stitched in by super advanced robots, but like they're not comprehensively covering your brain. They're, they're getting a couple millimeters deep into the surface layer of your brain. They're, they're covering a small fraction of these things. Can we record from neurons? Absolutely. Can we record from all of them and imprint your consciousness into silicone? Absolutely not. Seems like right now, the closest we have, based on the optogenetics we were talking about, you can turn things on, you can turn things off. Maybe eventually there'll be some kind of language or patterns we can build off of. But until then, it's you're essentially just trying to build the blueprint of how things even work. I mean, we're not even talking about content, yeah. i.e. consciousness, you know? No, you're, you're absolutely right. Like there's so much we just don't understand about how thoughts turn into action or how thoughts are even developed or how sensory information is processed to provide a comprehensive understanding of the world around you and how to manipulate it. There's just a a lot of unknowns and, you know, we're making strides more rapidly now than we ever have. There's a lot of really cool technologies coming down the pipeline, but, you know, we're fundamentally limited by the technology of our time. And a lot of these things are cool to think about conceptually, but like we're a long, long way off. Yeah. And it's not even to diminish what's here now. That's the thing. The last few guests we've had, uh, we've talked mostly about the larger ideas, some of the philosophical underpinnings of things. But as I was diving into the optogenetic stuff, it really is amazing in its own right. And I think you'd be amazed how even that works and the implications of it, that's more than enough to push whatever lobby or donate or contribute in some way to further this type of research. I agree completely. I mean, that's that's the kind of technology that needs to be developed to get us to where a lot of transhumanists see us being. But, you know, I think there's also a good argument to be made that in a lot of ways, just the smartphones we have today make us transhumanists. Like you can access the entirety of human knowledge in this little brick that sits in your hand. Holy shit. Sure, yeah. whatever. <laughs> Google wants to build that into some glasses, like fine, whatever. Maybe you see a heads up display instead of having to read it off a screen. But like, yeah, no, we're making progress. But these are big, hard problems that aren't going to be solved overnight. And there's a lot of very smart people, far more clever than myself, pushing hard on these things every day. But they're hard problems. They're not going to be solved overnight. And especially once you start putting humans in the loop, like we're still largely a black box. Like We don't know a mm. lot about how we work. They're just figuring out that the gut can influence the brain. And I saw a thing today about how apparently the flora and fauna in your gut produce little tiny microproteins that we previously haven't been able to detect. And we have no idea what they do. There's a lot of exploration that needs to happen. And I think it's great to kind of dream big and all that kind of stuff. But it reminds me of we've we've talked about him a few times on the show, David Rushkoff and his, his Team Human campaign a little bit, you know, mentioning basically that, yeah, humans are still very much a mystery box and there's still a long way to go. So let's not put the cart before the horse. 
you know, I love reading sci-fi and stuff like that as much as anyone. And it definitely inspires me. Like a lot of the thing that drove me to get into brain computer interfaces in the first place was, I don't know if you're familiar with William Gibson or the book Neuromancer. Mm, I've heard of it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a fantastic read, if only for the writing. Um, but the the technological implications are pretty cool too, but we're not there. And the way he describes the technology in the book, like it's not feasible, but conceptually, it's a really exciting concept. I, I certainly wouldn't discourage conceptual exploration of, you know, these emerging technologies and what they could ultimately lead to and what that could mean for humanity. But I also think it's good to stay grounded in reality and really kind of understanding where we are and what it takes to get to these sort of pie in the sky notions of what a human can be. Yeah, absolutely. And two, I think it's important to remember that so much of science, if not all of science, is iterative. It's not like there's some lightning bolt and then all of a sudden you have E equals MC squared or whatever, right? Like these concepts are built upon each other. And so to me, that just signals, hey, we really need to have a continuous and uninterrupted uh, source of funding and look at systems like the FDA, see how they can improve and be more collaborative with with different institutions and anywhere from Pfizer to essentially what your company is trying to do, right? Like how to navigate all of those spaces. It's really important stuff. Yeah, it's a big challenge. And part of me kind of likes the idea of it being consumer driven because that means money gets allocated in very concentrated ways in very interesting areas. But part of me kind of hates that because that's why you can get a boner when you're 70 or replace your hair, but we still have <laughs> yeah. colon cancer is a, is a major problem. Yeah, that's an excellent point. The, the vanity seems to come first where the dollars go. Well, it does in a, in, a, in a sort of capitalist system. I mean, and, and some amazing things have come out of that too. I don't want to demand like the smartphone, the internet. A lot of these have been driven by consumerism and capitalism and they're pretty amazing advances. But yeah, I think there also needs to be a good balance between somebody kind of saying, really, what's in the best interest of humanity versus what's, what's going to make you the most money? That's something that I, I often think about. Well, Ben, um, I really, I can't tell you how great it's been to have you on the show. Just really, honestly, for me, kind of sobering, especially, I think probably since the last guest, we've more focused on just pure concepts of transhumanism. So really diving deep into the, the nitty gritty kind of science of how these things actually work is really amazing. Um, even if it did somewhat give me a little trauma from my old physiological psychology class where we had to, you know, name all the parts of the neurons and the dendrites and all that stuff. But is there anything that you would like to plug? Or I, I know you, you're kind of keeping your career under wraps, but is there anything you'd like people to know about or just kind of any final thoughts or anything like that? I mean, the only thing I would plug is call your congressman, tell them to fund the NIH, tell them to fund the NSF. The DOD is flush with cash and they fund a lot of stuff for their own weird, nefarious reasons. But the NIH and the NSF are truly kind of altruistic organizations that are doing the best they can to improve the human condition. And that's what I would say. Well, Ben, it's been great having you on the show. I, I really appreciate it. Thanks yeah. a lot. I appreciate you having me on. If you enjoyed the podcast, remember to like and subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can find more Things We Think About discussion on Reddit at r slash Things We Think About. If you're interested in contributing to the show, our Patreon information is available in the description of the podcast, as well as on any of our YouTube videos.